Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right, how's everybody doing uh, this lovely Friday? Uh, I hope you had a good week. I'm back again uh, by popular demand uh, to answer some of your questions about uh, the Come Follow Me uh, curriculum, specifically about uh, what we're studying this week in 1 Nephi 1 through 7. Now, I want to just add a quick clarification or disclaimer, if you will. I should have done this last time, but I didn't. Uh, but I just want to make clear that, obviously, I'm not speaking officially for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I also want to make it clear I'm not speaking officially for Book of Mormon Central, nor am I speaking in any official capacity for this Facebook group, this Come Follow Me Facebook group. Uh, none of these are official statements or, or opinions or anything. Uh, I'm just giving you my answers and what I think about some of this stuff, uh, and I just hope you can appreciate the fact that uh, even in that regard, I'm speaking somewhat off the cuff. I have taken some notes and prepared a little bit for, for some of these questions, uh, but these are not uh, really, um, I haven't done in-depth research on, on a lot of these, and uh, my answer might be different if I spent more time. Uh, but what I do hope uh, I can do here is I can give you some information, point you in some directions, and those of you who asked questions, or maybe if you didn't ask a question but one of these caught your attention, uh, maybe you'll want to dig deeper and do some really thorough research and, and get to the bottom of it. And if you end up with a different answer than what I gave here, that's fine. Uh, you'll probably know more about it than I do by the time you're done. So, uh, with that, uh, disclaimer out of the way, let's go ahead and get started. We've got a ton of questions this time. Like last time, I'm probably not going to be able to answer all of them, but I'm going to answer as many as I can here, uh, in the next few minutes. Uh, and this time, uh, Xander did give me everyone's names when he sent me the questions. So I am going to mention uh, mention the name of the person asking. Uh, so you can listen up for your name if you asked a question, and uh, I'll see if I can give you an answer. Uh, so first question is from Deborah Ann Crane, uh, and she asked, How was Jerusalem destroyed after Lehi left? Was it by natural disaster or military invasion or some of both? Uh, and the answer is it was military invasion. The Babylonians uh, came around 586 BC um, and, uh, and completely destroyed Jerusalem, took everyone who wasn't killed captive, brought them back. There were some people who escaped and fled to Egypt and things like that, but, uh, and, and there's always some of the, the lower class of society who are left behind, um, but it was a very small amount at this point. It was the, the, the city had been completely obliterated at that point. And this is exactly what Lehi actually prophesies in 1 Nephi 1, 13. Uh, so, you know, go back and reread that if you'd like. Um, and it's all, in, it's all in 2 Kings and in Jeremiah as well. Um, next question is from Nathan Gee, and he asked, How big of a deal was it that Lehi began offering sacrifice not being a Levite? He says, the common answer is that he was a prophet, so he had the Melchizedek priesthood, so he could perform Aaronic or Levitical functions. But do we know this? Or is it projecting our modern understanding of priesthood function and organization to assume an answer? Um, and this is a great question. I'm glad you're thinking about this kind of thing. We actually have some material on uh, Book of Mormon Central that can help with this. Uh, you can go look up our Know Why number 9, which is how could Lehi offer sacrifices outside Jerusalem? Uh, which is primarily based on a paper by David Rolf Seeley titled Lehi's Altar and Sacrifice in the Wilderness, which is available in our archive at bookofmormoncentral.org. And uh, David Seeley is primarily focusing on the issue of sacrificing outside of Jerusalem. He's less, uh, the, the question of priesthood is not the question he's trying to answer, but he does talk about it, and we also talk about it in our Know Why, um, and he mentions the, the fact that Lehi was probably a Melchizedek priesthood holder, and so some of the rules would have been different for him. Um, I think there might be a little bit of projecting our own uh, modern assumptions about priesthood and function, but it's not a complete projection because we do see in the Book of Mormon itself, 
indicating uh, that the Nephites claimed their priesthood authority came from the order of Melchizedek. And that's, you know, we, we get hints about that in places like Alma 13 and, and stuff like that. Uh, and there is actually some interesting uh, evidence for that kind of thing going on. Margaret Barker, who's not a Latter-day Saint, uh, she's a biblical scholar, uh, and she was asked to comment on Joseph Smith's uh, revelations and theology at the bicentennial of his birth in 2005. This year's the bicentennial of the first vision, but 2005 or two, yeah, 2005 was the bicentennial of his uh, of his birth, and there was a conference held for that. And Margaret Barker, this non-LDS biblical scholar, was invited to participate in that conference, and she gave a paper that was later published uh, under the title "Joseph Smith and Pre-Exilic Israelite Religion." That word pre-exilic is just referring to the period before the Babylonians came and captured everybody. Uh, that's called the Babylonian exile, and so pre-exilic is before that exile. Um, and she's talking about the, the religion of Israel before that exile happened. Um, and uh, that paper can also be found in the Book of Mormon Central Archive if you're interested in reading more about it. But the short version here is that she argues that there was, in fact, a Melchizedek priesthood order in Jerusalem at this time, uh, and uh, it would have been uh, something that was rejected in favor of the Levitical priesthood uh, during the reforms of King Josiah. So uh, there, there was a Melchizedek priesthood. The exact way it related to or connected to Levitical priesthood uh, is maybe not clear. Um, some people, like Margaret Barker, are arguing that those two priesthood orders were kind of more in competition. Do you got to remember this was a period of, uh, this wasn't the fullness of times, this was a period of, of, uh, of apostasy to some extent, not complete apostasy, obviously, because there are prophets like Jeremiah and Lehi, but, but it's a general apostasy, and they, they don't have, uh, they don't have perfect knowledge of how everything's supposed to work. Uh, so, it might be projecting a little bit, but there is evidence to suggest Lehi was uh, a priest in the order of Melchizedek in some way, uh, and that's kind of the authority he's drawing on, uh, or he understands himself having at least, when he makes these sacrifices. Um, Nathan also asks if there are any other explanations possible or good examples from the Old Testament, and I don't have any great examples from the Old Testament offhand here, um, or on hand, I should say, but uh, there are some other explanations, and one that's actually kind of interesting is related to that know why and paper from Dr. Uh, David Seeley that I already mentioned, uh, because the rain, main focus of that one is sacrificing outside of Jerusalem. And uh, they actually draw on some evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls in a, in a text called the Temple Scroll. Uh, and in that text, it talks about... Um, it, it, it specifically says that if you are more than three days' journey from the Jerusalem Temple, you can go ahead and sacrifice, make sacrifices without having to go back to the temple. Most sacrifices you had to do at the temple, but if you're, if you're more than, if it's more than a three day journey, go ahead and make the sacrifice. The implication of that is the Levitical priests were all centered at, at the Jerusalem temple as well. So the implication of that is if you're more than three days away from Jerusalem, you're also allowed to just make your own sacrifice. Um, and so that's an interesting uh, possibility right there. And like I said, that's the main focus of that know-why I mentioned earlier uh, that you can go check out to learn more. Uh, but it is significant. First Nephi 2.6 specifically mentions that they had gone on a three-day journey, and that's after they reached the Red Sea. So they had been, they were well more than three days out. Uh, it's almost like Nephi was making sure and making clear to, uh, to his audience, we have gone the requisite distance to be able to make these sacrifices on our own and not need to go back to the temple and use the temple priest. Um, so that's just another possibility that's out there. Um, and then Nathan Gee, still uh, another component to his question, if Lehi was ordained, why wasn't it recorded when having priesthood authority is such an important talking point for us today? Uh, great question. It's always important to keep in mind we don't have Lehi's own record. We don't have the brass plates, which had his genealogy and may have also had any indication of, of his priesthood on it. Um, we don't have the large plates of Nephi, and we don't even have Mormon's abridgment of, of that stuff. We have just Nephi's small plates. Maybe he just didn't think it was important to include here. In fact, he, on genealogy, he specifically says, yeah, I'm not going to bother you guys with all those details. Just know he's a descendant of Joseph. Um, 
So there's no telling whether there were maybe those details on some of those other records we don't have. Um, what was more important to Nephi, at least, as far as establishing credibility and authority, uh, was establishing Lehi's credentials as a prophet. Uh, and he goes to pains to do this in 1 Nephi chapter 1, the whole story about Lehi's vision and theophany, uh, theophany meaning vision of God, is to establish that Lehi has stood in the courts of God and has been chosen as a prophet and commissioned to deliver the divine message that he's talking about. Um, and, it, and, and studies have been done on this to show that, that it's following all the patterns and, and hitting all the key points that were expected of prophetic call narratives for Israelite prophets in ancient uh, times. So, um, so there is kind of an explanation of the source of Lehi's authority, right? Uh, it's just not what we expect it to be. It's going, it's based on uh, expectations uh, of ancient Israelites. They would have understood that he had, based on this story, he had been called of God, based on, on this vision, I should say. It's not just a story, it really happened. Um, but they would have understood from that that he had, in fact, been called of God and been given authority and commissioned to deliver his message. Um, and so whatever kind of priesthood Lehi actually held, the important thing that's established is that he is truly called of God and has been given, and his authority has come directly from the Lord through, uh, through that, that uh, divine commission. All right. Uh, Deb Go Wenzel asks, how old was Nephi when he engraved the plates? Second Nephi says it had been 30 years since they left Jerusalem, and that's correct. Second Nephi 5, he says after 30 years, the Lord inspired him to start this small plates record. He had already been writing the large plates record before that, but 30 years after they left Jerusalem, he's in the new world. He's just barely separated from his brothers. The text says, yeah, it's time for you to start this other small plates record. Um, how old he was when he did that depends on how old he was when he left. If you want to go to our John W. Welch, uh, excuse me, John W. Welch notes uh, that we were published this week at bookofwormancentral.org, he uh, talks about this uh, and and kind of offers his answer for how old he thinks everyone in the family was when Lehi left. Um, and there's also a paper from John L. Sorensen called The Composition of Lehi's Family, uh, which is available on the BMC archive and also goes into detail on, uh, on how old everybody might have been. Now, you do have to understand all of this is really kind of speculation. We don't have definite numbers, um, but... I tend to assume, just as Welch and, and Sorensen do, that Nephi was probably in his mid-teens when they left, when the family left Jerusalem. So 30 years after that is going to put him uh, in his mid-40s. Um, and uh, when that, that would be when he began his record. We know by the end of 2 Nephi 5, it's already been 10 years since he began, because he says now it's been 40 years since my family left. So that would put him, you know, in his mid-50s by the time he finishes up through 2 Nephi 5. Uh, we don't know how much longer it took him to write the rest of 2nd Nephi, um, uh, but 2nd Nephi 33 would suggest he was pretty close to the end of his life uh, by the time he finished. But, uh, but yeah, so that's, that gives you an idea about how old Nephi was. As he's writing this record, it's good to know how old he is when these events are taking place, but I appreciate the question because it's nice to know what kind of perspective he is, he's talking about. Your reflections on your teenage years in your 40s are really different than what you think about them when you, you're still a teenager, right? So we're getting a mature mid-40s uh, point of view uh, from Nephi on his youth, basically. Um, all right, uh, and I'm going to apologize if I uh, say this name wrong. I hope I don't, but Janine Glenn is the next question I have here. And she says, how reliable is Nephi as a narrator? Uh, that's a really interesting question. It's not one people ask a lot. It's not one people think about a lot. Most, you know, are going to assume that everything's reliable here. Um, it's hard to know uh, an answer to this question, though, because we have no outside sources to draw on for direct comparison. Um, there is archaeology and other ancient sources that, that I've talked about in some places. A lot of other people have talked about some of this stuff that corroborate specific details in Nephi's narrative and give us a sense that uh, there is you know, some general accuracy to what he's saying, um, as far as the timing of everything and, uh, the, you know, things like, um, his description of the land of Jerusalem and stuff like that. 
Uh, we can see that's all pretty accurate. But um, we don't have anything like Laman and Lemuel's side of the story uh, to compare against and say, well, they saw things a little differently than Nephi. Um, it could be really fascinating. As a historian, I would love to, to have their point of view on some of this stuff. Um, and there is a paper by Richard L. Bushman uh, called The Lamanite View of Book of Mormon History. That was published in, uh, I think, volume two of a two-volume set called By Study and also By Faith. It was published in honor of Hugh Nibley. Um, he tries to tease out the Lamanite point of view on some of these, these the origin stories here um, uh, by getting little details from the Book of Mormon here and there. And so that might be of interest to you. Um, there's no doubt that Nephi, you know, has his, his own point of view and his biases, um, that Laman and Lemuel probably would have seen things differently. Um, some scholars, such as Grant Hardy, uh, in his book, Understanding the Book of Mormon, which was published by Oxford, uh, Grant Hardy kind of tries to talk a little bit about this and, and, and see if we can get into uh, understanding Nephi's mindset and understand how it might have looked a little different from Laman and Lemuel's point of view. Um, part of Nephi's agenda is political, and like I mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago, Nephi is starting this just after he and his brothers split up. And he had to flee because he says they were trying to kill him. So uh, as he's writing this, he's trying to establish for his people that uh, he is the one, uh, the, the um, let's see, he's, he's trying to assure his people that the Lord has in fact chosen him to be the leader, that they made the right choice in following him rather than his brothers. Um, and that's going to affect his analysis. And I'm not trying to say that Laman and Lemuel were right or that we should uh, we should follow them or whatever, but I'm just saying there is a point of view here and, and this is going to, you know, these kind of current events for Nephi would have shaped the way he was thinking about and what he chose to write, how he told his story, how he portrayed his brothers, things like that. Um, so, uh, like I said, I would love to have the other point of view. I'd love to know what Laman and Lemuel had to say, but even then we wouldn't really have a way to know for sure whether, um, whether, who was being more reliable, right? Uh, again, we'd have to have some kind of neutral third party uh, to be able to answer that, uh, some external sources. Um, if we had Lehi's record, that could be interesting. Uh, he, um, as their father, and, and he, you, know, you clearly get the sense, even from Nephi's record, that he loved Laman and Lemuel a great deal. Uh, he might not have portrayed them quite as negatively as Nephi did. Uh, and so that might have been an interesting way to, to get another perspective. But again, we don't have these sorts of things, so we can't be sure just how reliable Nephi's point of view is. Um, it's what we've got to work with. So, um, and, you know, he is the one, you know, chosen by God. The Lord, uh, the Lord wanted us to have Nephi's point of view, if that makes sense. So, um, so there's that. Uh, next question is from Matthew Shaw. How old was Lehi when he left Jerusalem with his family? This is, uh, connected to the one I answered earlier about how old Nephi was when he left. Uh, and once again, I'd suggest looking up the John W. Welch notes from this week, which talk about this, and also the John Sorensen paper I mentioned on the composition of Lehi's family. Um, so there are several other scholars who have, who have talked about this. Um, for the most part, though there's not strict agreement, for the most part, everyone agrees that Lehi was probably in his early 40s or mid-40s when he left. We know, uh, we tend to visualize him as being very old, but he survived an eight-year-long trek in the wilderness. He survived a very long ocean voyage that probably would have taken two to three more years, uh, not to mention the time they spent in Bountiful building the ship, which would have been probably another two to three years. Um, and he survived all of that and made it to the promised land. So he's probably not a really frail old guy. He's, he's, uh, he's hardy. He can, he can endure hardship pretty well. Um, and we also know none of his sons were married. So they're all relatively young in their teens or maybe early twenties. So, uh, Lehi himself is probably not much older than his, uh, his mid forties, I would guess. Um, Darren Henninger uh, asked, I am a little embarrassed to admit this, but my whole life I thought that Sam was younger than Nephi, but apparently uh, Nephi was the youngest. So my question is this, why did only Sam uh, believe Nephi's words after Nephi prayed to know the truth 
of what his father spake. What made Sam believe Nephi's words, but Laman and Lemuel not believe them? Great question. Um, the initial answer, maybe the the primary answer, I, I don't know, uh, but kind of the first go-to is Sam was just more prepared, right? He he was more spiritually prepared and ready to receive the message than Laman and Lemuel were. Uh, but I think there might be some other factors that, that could go into this. Um, for one thing, while Sam is older than Nephi, he's younger than Laman and Lemuel. So he's closer to Nephi in age. And I don't know if you had a big family or whatever, but I had kind of a big family. Um, and I can identify which siblings I feel like I grew up with versus the ones that were too much older that I don't really have a lot of memories of them or too much younger and I don't really have a lot of memories of them. And the ones closer to my age, that's who I kind of think of, yeah, I grew up with those siblings. And so Nephi and Sam were probably closer in age than Nephi and Laman or Nephi and Lemuel. Uh, and so they grew up together and uh, he would have, uh, Sam would have had a closer relationship with Nephi and so would have maybe been more inclined to trust him and uh, and believe him um, and to hear him out and to, to listen to what he had to say. Um, another thing that I think is going on is I actually think there's some ideological division within the family of Lehi. Um, and this is something I get to toot my own horn here this time. Uh, this is a paper I wrote um, and published with The Interpreter, and you can find it either on The Interpreter Foundation website for free or you can find it in the Book of Mormon Central Archive for free, uh, but it's called The Deuteronomist Reforms and Lehi's Family Dynamics. Um, and in there, I talk about how some of the uh, reforms, religious reforms going on at the time of, uh, of Lehi uh, would have impacted Lehi's family, and how, based on what we have in the Book of Mormon, Laman and Lemuel appear to be ideologically aligned with a certain party in that religious reform, whereas Nephi and Lehi appear to differ with that party um, in their understanding of Israelite religion. And so it, it'd be like um, if you had older siblings who were not members of the church but followed another Christian faith, um, the ones who would be more inclined to actually believe you and hear what you had to say would be the ones who share your religious convictions. So I think there might be kind of an ideological or religious divide there that's also kind of hindering Laman and Lemuel's ability to uh, to really hear out what Nephi and Lehi have to say and, and to put their faith in it and to believe it. All right, this next question comes from Kenneth Danes, who asked, has any evidence for the existence of the historical figure Laban around the time of Lehi been discovered? And then his follow-up question, do we know what his position was in Jerusalem? It sounds like he had prominent status. Uh, this is a really cool question. Uh, not because we do. In fact, the answer is no, we don't. Um, but I like the question because it's thinking about uh, the question of archaeological evidence in an important way, identifying someone who is actually likely, more likely than others, to actually show up in the archaeological record. Um, so this just shows some really good thinking about uh, about how archaeological evidence works and, and stuff like that. Like I said, unfortunately, the answer is still no. We don't have direct evidence for a uh, a Jerusalem official or a military official named Laban uh, around the time of Lehi. Uh, what we do have, though, is an artifact that might have belonged to him. Uh, and how we have that without having direct evidence for Laban uh, I can explain. It actually relates to the second question about what Laban's position was in Jerusalem at the time. And we don't know that for sure, uh, but the best guess I can think of um, is a title that we know called Commander of the Fortress. And uh, this is a title we know from I'm not sure if it shows up in any biblical text, but we know it from some uh, inscriptions and things that have been found since then. Uh, and there would have been a commander of the fortress at every uh, every city and fort throughout Judah. Uh, and uh, the first indication we got that this might be the kind of position Laban was in was when the Lachish letters were discovered and Hugh Nibley went through and found that uh, the commander of the fortress at Lachish behaved a lot like the way Laban behaves in uh, in 1 Nephi. Um, and he, he has the same kind of authority, he wields the same kind of power, uh, and he has records and archives being kept in his guardhouse. 
uh, just like Laban has a treasury in his house where he keeps the records and things like that. And so Hugh Nibley made all these comparisons to the commander of, uh, of Lachish and Laban and found a lot of parallels there. Um, and now more recently, scholars have actually identified a seal in Jerusalem that belonged to the commander of the fortress there in Jerusalem and dates to the 7th century BC. Um, it does not have a name on it, and scholars specifically think there isn't a name so that it could be handed down uh, to whoever takes over the position um, each generation or, or, or whatever. Um, so it doesn't have a name on it, so we don't know who this commander was. It's likely multiple people o over successive generations owned and used the seal. Um, and so if that is what Laban was, if he was the commander of the fortress, then he probably owned this seal for a, t a time before, well, before Nephi killed him. Uh, but that's obviously very speculative. Um, some interesting possibilities, in my opinion, but, uh, but ultimately, no, we don't have explicit evidence for Laban uh, in, um, in the archaeological record right now. Um, Clay Cook asks, while we are, uh, while reading 1 Nephi 1 through 7, I kept wondering, why didn't Laman and Lemuel just leave and go back to Jerusalem? They liked, uh, like they seemed to want to. If they were so upset with their father and Nephi's point of view, uh, that they wanted to resort to murder, why stay with the family in the wilderness? Uh, that's another good question. Um, a lot of things we could talk about. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out there are a number of occasions where they they kind of say they're going to, right? They almost do. They tie Nephi up in the wilderness in 1 Nephi 7, which is towards the end of our reading here. We know when Ishmael dies that the daughters of Ishmael, along with Laman and Lemuel, all want to go back then. So there are times where they, they plan to. They express their plans to go back. Um, and what happens every time in the story is God intervenes, right? A miracle happens. They're humbled, they repent, and they stay. Uh, and so the ultimate answer to why they never leave is because, uh, because of the miracles of God and, to their credit, humble repentance. Now, granted, their repentance never really seems to stick, but uh, they did repent, and, and re they repented sincerely enough to stay out in the wilderness on multiple occasions. Um, I also think it's just worth pointing out they were in the wilderness for eight years, and we really only have a few stories about them, uh, which suggests that for the most part over the course of that time, they weren't itching to go back all the time. Um, they may not have been super gung-ho about uh, going out there, but maybe kind of like stubborn teenagers, they're willing to go and follow along and go on the family trip, even though it maybe wasn't really what they wanted to do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, for the most part, wh whenever they do want to go back, we see God intervenes, and it seems that's the ultimate answer is they repent um, and, and ultimately choose to stay. Um, and it goes through a cycle. They don't always, it's not always lasting repentance, but it is repentance. And even Nephi expresses optimism at times that they are, uh, they're on the right path and maybe, maybe things will stick this time. Um... Rochelle Lloyd asks, what exactly was Lehi's occupation and how do we know this? I believe it is relevant to Nephi's education and also uh, as to why they wrote in Reformed Egyptian. Yes, this is a great question and I think you're absolutely right. that This is going to be relevant to understanding Nephi's education, why he wrote in Reformed Egyptian, everything. Um, and there have been multiple different answers given uh, to this question. Um, some scholars think he's a merchant or uh, a caravaneer uh, who would have just uh, traveled and, and sold and traded goods. Um, others have suggested he's a craftsman and more specifically a metalsmith or metal worker of some type. Um, an obvious possibility is that he's a scribe. He's educated and can write um, because that's the one thing we definitely know they can do is Lehi can write and Nephi can write and because we have a sample of Nephi's writing, we can see that Nephi can write really, really well. So at one time or another, he received scribal training somehow. Um, you can read some of the different ideas uh, that scholars have put forward and the evidence they cite, which is usually based on clues in the text, um, in a paper by John A. Tavetnis called uh, Was Lehi a Caravaneer? 
Uh, that is in the Book of Mormon Central Archive. You can read it for free. Um, even though the title uh, only has Caravaneer in there, he actually talks about several different uh, uh, possible professions for Lehi um, and evaluates the evidence for them. Um, I personally tend to favor the idea that Lehi was a metal worker of some type. Uh, the main evidence, uh, th there's actually several lines of evidence for this, but one of the main ones is that Nephi uh, in Bountiful knows how to, um, he knows how to work ore to make tools. He doesn't ask the Lord how to do that. He just asks the Lord where the ore is because he's not familiar with the area. Um, he knows how to work the ore to make tools. When he gets to the promised land, he finds ore, knows how to work it into plates. And in fact, the very virtue of the very fact that he chooses to write on plates, uh, that's an expensive thing to do. I mean, writing at all is, is expensive in the ancient world. Uh, you expend a lot of resources doing it on precious metals. That's pricey. Um, I believe that choice is at least partly driven by the fact that Nephi knows how to make and prepare a metal plate to write on, whereas he maybe doesn't have as much experience with other uh, other types of materials. Um, and so that's that's kind of what I think, but like I said, there are other possibilities. The most complete uh, argument for Lehi as a metalsmith was made by Jeff Chadwick in a paper called Lehi's House at Jerusalem in the Land of His Inheritance. And that's also on the BMC archive uh, if you want to go check that out. Um, this is still uh, from Rochelle Lloyd. Uh, why are the three times trying for the plates important? Is there a connection to birthright slash right to rule Jewish law and God's law? Yes. Yes, there is. There is absolutely a connection uh, to the right to rule and the birthright going on in this story. What we actually see, um, we tend to think of the story about getting the plates starting in 1 Nephi chapter 3, uh, but the real starting point is 1 Nephi chapter 2 verse 16. This is when Nephi begins his story, um, and he begins it by talking about him crying unto the Lord, receiving a revelation that reaffirms what his father has taught, but then also receiving a promise from God that he would, that, that he would be made a ruler and a teacher over his brethren, and that his posterity would prosper if they kept the commandments. Uh, and it's immediately after this that he sent him and, him and his brothers are sent to get the brass plates, and it's here um, that these promises are already beginning to get realized in certain ways, um, and uh, this is actually kind of the process of him becoming the ruler in this story here, uh, or, or, or gaining the legitimate right to rule over uh, his brothers. Um, it starts with Laman. He's chosen by casting of lots to go get the plates, and casting of lots, it's kind of like rolling dice or, or whatever. In fact, we have ancient dice that they would have used. We, we can, we have examples. It's kind of funny. They look just like our dice. They're just 3,000 years old. Uh, but um, we have those, and, and that's kind of how they would have, that, that's one way that they cast lots. There were other ways, but casting of lots would have been seen as a way of determining God's will. It's what the apostles did in in Acts 1, when they decide we need to replace Judas, they cast lots, and that's how they determine God's will for who should be the next apostle. Um, so this is something, when they cast lots and Laman is the one chosen, uh, what we see actually happening is it's the Lord who is choosing Laman and giving him a chance to prove himself. He's saying, okay, Laman, you are the oldest. This is first and foremost your responsibility. Show me what you got. We know Laman doesn't really succeed, and after Laman fails, Nephi starts to assert himself as the, as the leader and as the teacher. He's the one who tells them, hey, we've got to stay out here, we've got to keep trying. He kind of goes on a little bit of a monologue where he teaches them about uh, you know, their, their responsibilities and their covenants and how they've got to keep the commandments and be faithful and, and do this, because the Lord has commanded them to do it. Uh, he's the one who comes up with the next plan, which we know also fails. And after that failed plan, what do Laman and Lemuel do? They start beating Nephi with a rod. And the rod is a symbol of authority. It has been for ages and ages. We've got lots of examples of, of it being used as a symbol of authority in the ancient Near East. And so what we actually kind of see happening is after Nephi has taken charge and taken his place as leader, Laman is reclaiming his place and trying to reclaim his birthright, reassert his leadership 
by beating his brother with a symbol for authority. And the angel has to come in and intervene and reminds, well, reminds us as readers, but Laman and Lemuel don't know about the promise. They, the, the angel tells them about the promise that Nephi's received, that he is the one who has the right to rule. And so the angel's kind of in effect saying, you have no business wielding the rod over him. He's the one who is your ruler and your teacher, and it's his right to actually wield the rod over you. Not that Nephi would beat his brothers with a rod. But the, the point is, the, the angel is telling him, no, 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 you have no right to reassert this authority. It is Nephi's, God has chosen him. Uh, and then Nephi goes and proves it, right? He goes, uh, he proves that he really is the one chosen by the Lord by going and succeeding on his own without his brother's help to get the brass plates um, and come back with them. So this, this story has everything to do with, uh, with that birthright and right to rule. And the three different attempts are all part of this narrative arc building up to the ultimate establishment of Nephi as the one with the right to rule over his brothers and be their teacher. Um, and uh, this is still from uh, Rochelle. She also asked, what is the significance of Lehi dwelling in a tent? Uh, it was hard to write on plates. The space was so scarce. Why include it? Um, so, 1 Nephi 2.15, famous, hilariously famous almost for being so short. And my father dwelt in a tent, right? Um, what Nephi is actually doing there is he's concluding his first story. Um, the story of his family, his father receiving his visions, and his family having to flee and establish themselves in the wilderness. Uh, notice that uh, the um, the phrase, my father dwelt in a tent, parallels with what we see in 1 Nephi 1.4, where he talks about his father having dwelt at Jerusalem all his days. So uh, that's the beginning of the story, is Lehi's dwelling at Jerusalem. By the end of the story, he's dwelling in a tent. And Nephi uses reference to his father dwelling in a tent throughout the book of 1 Nephi to conclude narrative arcs and stories. And like I said, 1 Nephi 2.16, right there, that's when Nephi begins the story about Laban and about going and getting the plates with the promise about um, prospering in the land and being a ruler over his brethren and things like that. So it's a, it's a narrative device used to demarcate the end of stories. Um, and so I would encourage everyone, look for that uh, showing up in your reading as you go, not only through 1 Nephi 1 through 7, but through the rest of 1 Nephi, because he's going to repeat that phrase until they move on uh, over and over again as a device of, of concluding different narratives. Uh, Linda Sundberg Stevens asked, There are two commandments that stand out to me that were broken, thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not steal. Why was it okay for Nephi to do these? This is a great question, and we know, look, the sanctity of life is is of utmost importance. This story about Nephi killing Laban, it's gruesome and violent. I mean, we don't get a lot of gruesome details, but when you think about what's being done, this is, this is not a pleasant story. It's hard for a lot of people. Um, as far as violation of commandments goes, though, uh, there's actually a no why on Book of Mormon Central. It's no why number 256 was the slaying of Laban legal. And that's based on a paper by John W. Welch, The Legal Perspectives on the Slaying of Laban, which is in our archive. Uh, these talk about the law of Moses and go into detail as to what th the stipulations were about uh, killing and when it was uh, permissible or legal to kill under the law of Moses and when it was not. Um, and uh, in particular, these things key on a particular passage, Exodus 21, 13 through 14, um, where the key details there are about uh, where it basically says, if a person does not lie in wait, so you're not sitting there waiting to ambush someone and kill them, not lying in wait, you're not plotting this, it's not intent, it's not what you're planning to do. Um, if they do not lie in wait, but God delivers them into their hands, then the killing uh, is considered legal under the law of Moses. And Nephi makes it a point to make clear, in 1 Nephi 4, 6, he says that uh, he did not know. He was, he was following the Spirit. He did not know beforehand what he was going to do. 
So he had no plan. He was not lying in wait, intending to ambush Laban. Um, and then he makes it clear that the spirit is telling him, God has delivered him into your hands. So uh, Nephi appears to be making a legal case for himself as he writes this story, uh, that his killing of Laban was legal under the stipulations of the law of Moses. Um, but you can check that out. Welch, by the way, is a respected scholar of biblical law. He's published uh, in the Jewish um, Legal Association Journal before, and, and he's published in other places, um, you know, with Oxford University Press and some of their uh, biblical law encyclopedias and stuff. He's a very good scholar of biblical law, and so he's looking at this from the perspective of biblical law. Did Nephi actually violate a commandment, or was he acting within the law of Moses? Welsh's conclusion is that he was actually acting within the law of Moses when he slew Laban. Um, all right, we're uh, going to be wrapping up here soon, I think. Just a few more questions. Uh, another one from Janine Glenn. Would Lehi have seen the reforms of Josiah as a good thing or a bad thing? And I've already alluded to these reforms a little bit in some of my earlier answers. Uh, I think Lehi's relationship to the reforms of Josiah is complicated. Uh, the paper I mentioned about uh, the Deuteronomistic reforms and Lehi's family dynamics that I wrote, that goes into more details on how I see things here. Um, other people have talked about this as well in uh, the Interpreter Journal on the Interpreter Foundation website. If you go to volume four, there's an exchange of, of uh, kind of a back and forth between William J. Hamblin and Kevin Christensen on this topic. Uh, William Hamblin thinks Josiah's reforms were more of a good thing. Kevin Christensen, uh, he sees Lehi more as opposed to these reforms. Um, my own view is I see it very similar to the Great Reformation of our own modern times back in the 1500s. Uh, reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin uh, I believe had good intentions. I believe that they were to some extent inspired by God, but I do not agree with everything they said and did. I don't agree with their theology. The prophet Joseph Smith and his revelations upend some of their theology, right? We don't believe they got it all right. And uh, not to mention there was a lot of violence that went with this, and I do not condone all of their actions and and everything they did. The, um, there was just brutal acts of violence. And there were some brutal acts of violence involved in, in Josiah's reforms as well. I just have, I, I think, I kind of see Lehi's relationship to Josiah's reforms along those same lines. He probably saw some good in what Josiah was doing, and Josiah probably was inspired by God, but there were some aspects of Israelite religion um, that uh, that Lehi still believed that, uh, that Josiah was trying to, to change and stamp out and things like that. And uh, to get to, for background on these reforms, if you're interested, uh, Margaret Barker, who I mentioned earlier, uh, has another paper just called "What Did What Did Josiah Reform?" Uh, and that paper is also in the Book of Mormon Central Archive. That just talks about the aspects of Israelite religion that Josiah changed. Um, and you can look through having that paper as background. You can then read th through First Nephi and. Look for where he seems to fall on some of these things, and it, it becomes clear uh, Lehi believed a lot of the things Lehi, um, excuse me, Lehi believed a lot of the things Josiah was trying to change. All right, the next question comes from Krista Bateman, uh, and she just said, I'd like more information about rivers of water versus rivers of sand. Uh, I think that came up in some of the conversations in the Facebook group here. Um, basically, in Arabia, most rivers are seasonal, at least their water flow is seasonal. So um, during the rainy seasons, uh, they'll, they'll have big flash floods through, but after the flood through, water will continue to flow through little riverbeds and stuff for a while. But once the rainy season ends and, and it's the dry season begins, after a while, those rivers dry up. Well, they don't speak of those rivers as not existing. They just, they're there. They just don't have water in them. So they're just kind of rivers of sand. Um, uh, Greg Munton asked, uh, I understand the language or characters developed by Nephi was an amalgamation of Hebrew and Egyptian meroitic or demotic or whatever. Uh, has there been any further scholarship on, on the transcribed characters given to Anthon or others? Uh, I personally haven't studied 
the Anthem transcript extensively, but at Book of Mormon Central, we did a no-why just a few months ago, uh, no-why number 515, called What Do We Know About the Anthem Transcript? That's going to give you the most up-to-date information on what's been said about that. The further reading and the footnotes will point you to pretty much all the academic literature available on there. So uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can go check that out. I personally don't have a lot more to say about it. Um, Heather Ingram, uh, where did the brass plates come from? Who was keeping that record and updating it? It had current prophecies from Jeremiah and current genealogy. Uh, it obviously had great value uh, because Laban was unwilling to part with it. Yeah, so 1 Nephi 5.16 says that it was Laban. He possessed the record. Uh, he was a descendant of Joseph. Uh, and that's kind of given as the reason for why he has the record. It's because he's a descendant of Joseph. So it seems the origins are somehow tied to Joseph of Egypt. Uh, this is also consistent with, you know, 2 Nephi 3, which uh, gives us extensive prophecies from Joseph of Egypt uh, that we don't have in the Bible. Um, prophets like Zenus and Zenoch are also said, uh, I can't remember the passage, but somewhere in 3 Nephi, it says that they were also descendants of Joseph. So uh, there are additional prophets on here who are descendants of Joseph. So it seems there's some kind of connection to these records and the lineage of Joseph and, and the origin might have something to do with, with Joseph of Egypt. Um, as far as who was keeping it up to date, uh, Laman, or excuse me, Laban himself probably wasn't doing that. My best guess is Zoram. Uh, some people think Zoram is a slave, in which case he wouldn't have been very well educated. Uh, but if we see him, you know, the text calls him a servant, and if we understand him as being uh, a scribe that Laban hires and, and that works for Laban, uh, then he's probably the one, he, that, there's a reason he has an access to Laban's treasury with all the records, right? Um, he's probably the one uh, keeping it up to date um, and has added things like the prophecies of Isaiah current prophecies from Jeremiah, and 2 Nephi 5 even says that the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah is included in there. So he's probably the one who's been keeping this pretty up to date. Uh, another one from Nathan Gee, he asks, why did Lehi of the tribe of Joseph live in Jerusalem? How much migration from uh, the original lands of inheritance would have happened by this point? When did the significant migrate, uh, and when, when were the significant migrations? So, um, to just back up in history a little bit, uh, about 120 years before Lehi's time, uh, the Assyrian Empire comes down and completely wipes out the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. Um, and that's uh, around 722 BC. And uh, what we actually see in the archaeological record is there's a massive influx of people into Jerusalem and other surrounding cities uh, throughout Judah right at the same time. And the prevailing theory among archaeologists and historians is that people from northern Israel are fleeing the Assyrian, uh, the, the, the Assyrian invasion and settling in the area of Judah. And so uh, some estimates, uh, most estimates are that, that Jerusalem grew two to three times its size in that time. I've seen some estimates as high as four to five times that size. Uh, but the result was uh, Jerusalem became a great city and it was heavily populated actually by people from, uh, from the northern tribes, um, which is interesting since all our main characters that we know the background of, Laban, uh, and Lehi and his family. And uh, we learned from some historical sources, uh, people who, who heard Joseph Smith say that Ishmael was also of the tribe of Ephraim uh, and that that was in the last 116 pages. So um, all our major characters are from northern tribes, which is something Joseph Smith was criticized about, but now our evidence is actually a lot of the people, perhaps most of the people living in Judah by that point, uh, had actually were actually descendants of northern tribes, given given the growth we see in Jerusalem at that time. All right, and this is going to be my last one. We're going to finish out with a little bit of a spiritual note. Stephen uh, Gedi, I'm sorry, I'm sorry if I said that wrong, or Gedei, maybe, um, asked, what gospel principles have you discovered that help you experience God more in your life? And 
that's a great question. I think it is really important to note that uh, as interesting as all this historical stuff is, it's the gospel principles, and, and the Book of Mormon is here to draw us closer to God. Um, so in relation to 1 Nephi 1 through 7, I think uh, one of the main principles I've learned from that uh, has to do with uh, obedience, right? Obedience to commandments, and that's the main theme of, of Nephi's story about trying to get the plates, right, is about being able to keep the commandments so that they can prosper in the land. And there's a quote that's been attributed to Ezra Taft Benson. I've never actually been able to find the source uh, of Benson's quote, but I've I found various things that, that cite him but don't tell me where they got it from. Uh, but uh, the quote goes something like this, and I don't have it written down off the—this is just off the top of my head— but it's something to the effect of that the day— obedience ceases to be an irritant and becomes a quest is the day we gain power. Um, and I think that the stories in 1 Nephi 1 through 5, at least, which is Nephi's first chapter in his original text, uh, are really, really illustrative of this, especially the story about getting the plates from Laban. I mean, what we see over and over again is Nephi saying, I will go and do, and making it his quest to accomplish the Lord's will. Uh, after the first failed attempt, 1 Nephi 3.15, he makes an oath, as the Lord liveth and as I live, I will not go back down to the tent of my father until I've accomplished the thing which I've been commanded. And that's a paraphrase. Don't, I'm sorry if I didn't quote it perfectly. Whereas Laman and Lemuel, keeping the commandments is kind of an irritant, right? This is a hard thing. They don't want to do it. Uh, they fail over and over again. Nephi succeeds, and that's because he's made it his quest, and he's been empowered by God, and that's something I've experienced in my own life, is uh, when I've tried to uh, really make it my goal and my purpose and my aim in life to accomplish the Lord's will, uh, rather than being annoyed that I have to do something or fulfill a calling or whatever, I find I'm able to do it so much better. I am empowered and... Uh, and enabled in ways that go beyond my own ability. And so uh, that would be the gospel principle I think we can draw from a lot of this uh, in this section. Uh, but uh, yeah, like I said, that's our last question. I'm sorry this was really, really long. There were a lot of questions I skipped over and, and didn't answer. We had so many great questions, and uh, I love that about this group. You guys are not just asking questions, but you're asking really good questions. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks again for watching, and uh, let us know again in the comments if you want us to keep doing this. We're still not committed as to whether we're going to be doing this every week or not, uh, so you know, let us know what you think we should do. Uh, thanks.